0: Sounds of History, the podcast of GeneveMonde.ch. Here is a hand-to-hand struggle in all its horror and frightfulness. Austrians and allies trampling each other underfoot, killing one another on piles of bleeding corpses felling their enemies with their rifle butts, crushing skulls, ripping bellies open with sabre and bayonet. No quarter is given. It is sheer butchery, a struggle between savage beasts maddened with blood and fury. Even the wounded fight to the last gasp. When they have no weapon left, they seize their enemies by the throat and tear them with their teeth.
1: GeneveMond.ch.
2: Sounds of History number two. Welcome. Hi, Véronique. Hi, David. So today we decided to dedicate our podcast, Sounds of History, to the history of the Geneva Conventions and International Humanitarian Law.
1: Yes, indeed, and we can see today huh, with the war in Ukraine and the criticisms made in the press that international humanitarian law is always difficult to apply. But to understand this humanitarian law and how it works, we have to go back to its origins. This is the subject of today's podcast.
2: International humanitarian law is also the theme of our January thematic dossier which is available on the GeneveMonde.ch website. To find the dossier, it's easy. Enter GeneveMonde.ch, go to the uh, browse section and click on dossier. Véronique, when we talk about uh, the humanitarian law, we talk about the Geneva Conventions, the law of war, the additional protocols. It's sometimes confusing. I have all that
1: in my head, but not really in a clear way. So where do we start? (laughs) Uh, I think we should start with the Geneva Conventions because they are the basis of international humanitarian law.
2: Okay, so what are the Geneva Conventions?
1: The Geneva Conventions, David, are international treaties that contain the fundamental rules of international humanitarian law. Their main objective is to limit violence on the battlefield. IHL is about imposing limits on human violence in armed conflict, but it is not about prohibiting war. There is a law of war, but it is different. The law of war is the set of rules to conduct war, and the humanitarian law is the set of rules and principles to limit the direct effects of war.
2: The humanitarian law was formulated by the ICRC in Geneva, right?
1: Absolutely. The ICRC is an old organization. It was founded in Geneva in 1863 on the initiative of Geneva citizens. Today, the ICRC intervenes in conflicts around the world and the Geneva Conventions are among the most ratified treaties in the world. Geneva also plays the role of a kind of promoter of international humanitarian law abroad. Since the end of the 19th century, Switzerland has built its foreign policy essentially around two elements, neutrality and humanitarianism. Switzerland, which has a long humanitarian tradition, supported the creation of the ICRC and the adoption of the Geneva Conventions.
3: It was June 1859 a lone carriage struggled across northern Italy. The gentleman inside, the Geneva merchant, Henri Dunant, was on important business. He was determined to be given an audience by Napoleon III, the powerful emperor of France. Dunant knew that Napoleon was now somewhere nearby with his troops. Dunant suddenly found himself in the midst of a battlefield, was horrified. Outside the normally quiet village of Solferino, the French and Austrian armies were fighting a terrible battle. By evening, thousands lay dead, dying and wounded. But the medical troops simply could not cope, and the weary and bloodied soldiers on both sides had enough to do just saving themselves and finding their way back to their lines. So when we talk about
2: the IHL, we always talk about a battle like the battle that gave birth to IHL, the Battle of Solferino. We have just heard a take from a documentary film produced by the ICRC that evokes Solferino. Uh, Why was it a founding moment?
1: So Solferino is a a town uh, in northern Italy that in 1859 was occupied by Austria France had allied itself with the Piemont in order to liberate northern Italy and begin the process of unifying the Italian peninsula. The Battle of Solferino took place on June 24, 1859, and pitted the French and Piemontese armies against the Austrian army. It is surely one of the bloodiest European battles, along with the Battle of Waterloo. The toll is difficult to assess, but it is estimated that between 30,000 and 40,000 people died. Henri Dunant, a Geneva banker on a business trip, visited the battlefield of Solferino and was deeply affected by the tens of thousands of wounded and abandoned soldiers dying on the battlefield.
2: At the time, Veronique, there was little concern for the fate of prisoners of war. There were no or very few doctors on the battlefield, right?
1: Yes, right. And know, who was not a doctor, made a decision that completely changed the course of his life and the course of the life of many others. He decided to stay and help the wounded soldiers. And he surprised everyone by asking that the captured Austrian doctors be released to treat the wounded, regardless of the nationality. His experience led him to formulate ideas on the possibility of limiting violence on the battlefield. These ideas were not entirely original, and we can cite the charitable actions of the British Florence Nightingale during the Crimean War, or the Grand Duchess Helena Pavlovna, who sought to make the European bourgeoisie aware of the violence of wars and of the need to bring help to wounded soldiers.
0: Is there in the world a prince or a monarch who would decline to support the proposed societies, happy to be able to give full assurance to his soldiers that they will be at once properly cared for if they should be wounded?
2: How did Henri Dunant manage to get the first Geneva Conventions adopted in 1864?
1: Well, back in Geneva... Henri Dunant published his War Diaries in 1862 in the form of a book entitled A Memory of Solferino, an extract of which we have just heard. Dunant was looking for a way to mobilize public opinion on the fate of wounded soldiers and prisoners of war. In the second part of his book, he formulates a series of ideas that form the basis of the future ICRC and international humanitarian law. In A Memory of Solferino, Dunant made two important proposals, the creation of national relief societies and the conclusion of a treaty to protect sanitary services on the battlefield.
2: In Geneva, other personalities will rally to his cause and form a committee that will soon take the name of International Committee of the Red Cross ICRC.
1: Yes, and these personalities were from Geneva, Protestants and from the same social class. Next to Henri Dunant, there was the lawyer Gustave Mounier, the general Guillaume-Henri Dufour, and two surgeons, Théodore Monoir and Louis Appia. These personalities were to organize two international conferences. The first in 1863 at the Alabama Hall, the emblematic venue of International Geneva, laid the foundations of future relief societies. And the second in 1864, also at the Alabama Hall, adopted the first Geneva Convention to protect wounded soldiers in wartime.
0: Letter from Mr. Van Eyre, Swiss consul in Le Havre. 9th of September, 1863. To Gustave Mounier, President of the Société d'Utilité Publique, 3 Rue Neuve du Manège, Geneva. Dear Sir, this morning's mail has brought me the document you have just published under the title of "International Conference on the Sanitary Service of Armies in the Field." Honor to Monsieur Henri Dunant and to your society for the happy idea of creating effective relief for the victims of war it will be welcomed by all men of good will and blessed by the Almighty. If my age does not allow me to enlist among the battlefield nurses, I would seek the honor of being a member of the first committee to be formed, and my most ardent wish is that the Swiss Society of Public Utility, of which I have the honor of being a member, should take up your beautiful and great idea and devote itself to its propagation it cannot encounter serious obstacles. The venerable and excellent General Dufour will laugh at the poor consul and will be well advised, I would be very grateful, if you would present him with my most respected tributes. May God give him many years. The time is ripe for material interests. Many governments seem to think only of creating ever new food for selfishness and the public spirit is leaving. However, There are still many men who do not live by bread alone, but they are isolated. We must, therefore, invite them to join together for the triumph of every generous idea. So I cannot tell you enough how happy I am that the competition to which you are so kind as to invite me has Geneva as its cradle, and to what degree it has aroused my sympathy. Please convey this to your honourable colleagues and accept, sir, the assurance of my high consideration and devotion. Signed, the Swiss consul, F. Van Eyre.
2: On August the 22nd, 1864, the first Geneva Convention was adopted by 12 countries at the General Congress in Geneva. What role did Switzerland play in this?
1: Well, after the ICRC was founded in 1863... The members of the committee wanted to organize a major diplomatic conference at which an international treaty, the first Geneva Convention of 1864, would be adopted. But the ICRC needed support, and in particular the support of a great power that would give legitimacy to the international treaty project. In this context,
2: Henri Dunant multiplied his contacts and trips abroad.
1: Yes, it was the French emperor... Napoleon III, who gave him strong support. Napoleon III agreed to sponsor the conference, which Switzerland as a neutral country could not or did not wish to do. The Swiss Confederation then agreed to host this international meeting. When asked what role Switzerland could play, The Federal Council decided that such an international conference was perfectly in keeping with its role as a neutral country and made it possible to link its foreign policy to its humanitarian tradition, which at a time referred above all to its tradition of asylum. After the signing of the first Geneva Convention, Switzerland's humanitarian tradition will evolve considerably under the influence of the ICRC and the Geneva Conventions.
2: The first convention of 1864 aimed to improve the conditions of wounded soldiers on the battlefield. In what way?
1: Indeed. The 1864 convention stipulates that hospitals must be protected from any attacks, that all soldiers, whatever their nationality, must be able to be treated, that all persons assisting the wounded must be protected. And finally, that the protective sign of the Red Cross must be recognized by all states that have adopted the 1864 convention. What is the the history of the ICRC emblem, a red cross on a white background? The ICRC symbol, which represents the reverse colors of the Swiss flag, was chosen in honor of Switzerland the host country of the committee's first international conference and the home country of the ICRC founders. This is an important moment because at the time, if there were symbols to identify the medical services of the armed forces, they were different from one country to another and were rarely respected. The symbol of the Red Cross was to be universally accepted. but Was it the case really? No, not at its time, and it would be some time before this was the case. For example, during the Russian-Turkish War of 1877 to 1878, the Ottoman Empire refused to use the emblem, associating it with the Crusaders. Instead, it used a red crescent as a protective emblem, and the Ottoman Empire was followed by the majority of Muslim countries. Then the Geneva Convention of 1929, recognized the Red Crescent as a second protective emblem. Much later, in 1986, the International Conference of the Red Cross decided that the organization should change its name, and the International Committee of the Red Cross and Red Crescent was born. We can also mention the case of Israel, which also refused to use the RCRC's emblems, believing them to be religious signs and which has since used the red shield of David, a red six-pointed star surrounded by a red diamond. And in
2: 2005, a third additional protocol sets out the red crystal emblem for those who could not want to intervene under the Red Cross or Red Crescent while keeping the same prerogatives. There are several stages that led to the Geneva Conventions in their present form. Uh, Were there any developments following the First World War?
1: Yes, the First World War will fundamentally change the ICRC. The organization expanded and developed its actions in the field of conflict, thanks to the creation of the first national delegations that employed local staff. The First World War also brought about the emergence of new categories of victims, such as political prisoners, refugees and civilians in occupied territories, which nourish the need to reform the international humanitarian law in order to provide these categories of people with legal protection. The adoption of the 1929 Convention made it possible to extend legal protection to soldiers who are prisoners of war, but the ICRC did not manage to integrate civilians into the international humanitarian law.
2: In fact, Veronique, it was not until the Second World War that the ICRC succeeded in providing civilians with protection in wartime.
1: Indeed, the Second World War will result in a broadening of the scope of application of international humanitarian law towards civilian populations. That said, David, the ICRC was already well aware of the violence generated by modern wars on civilian populations. We can cite, for example, the Second Italo-Ethiopian War of 1935-1936, in which the ICRC was involved, or the Spanish Civil War, in which atrocities were committed against civilians on both sides, the Republican and Franco camps. But it was not until the Second World War that an awareness was raised on the need to provide protection for civilians in wartime.
4: From the Alabama Room at Geneva City Hall on August 22, 1944, Mr. Max Hubert, President of the International Committee of the Red Cross, speaks to us. The date, August 22, 1864, it is a decisive date for the Red Cross which marks the beginning of an important phase, the evolution of international law. The act signed 80 years ago by the plenipotentiaries at the diplomatic conference known throughout the world as the Geneva Convention. This convention enshrined within the framework of international law, principles already proclaimed in 1863 by an unofficial conference, of which Henri Dunant was the inspirer and General Dufour the president. In 1944, the ICRC celebrates
2: its 80th anniversary, and in the archive soundbite, we just heard Max Hubert, a Swiss jurist who was president of the ICRC from 1928 to 1944, talks about the importance of the post-Second World War period in the evolution of the humanitarian law. What are these changes that Max Huber talks about?
1: Yes, the Second World War highlights the viability of international humanitarian law in several respects. Historians who have worked on this period have shown several cases where the Geneva Conventions were not respected. This was the case with Italian soldiers captured by the Germans after the armistice of September 8, 1943, or with the soldiers of the German and Japanese armies, captured by the Allies after their unconditional surrender. In each case, these captured soldiers were refused the status of prisoners of war. The repatriation of prisoners of war after the cessation of hostilities posed many problems. Some prisoners, especially German prisoners, had to wait several years before they were released and could return home. So the
2: Second World War was a time of questioning for the ICRC.
1: Yes, and the ICRC was also criticized for not having denounced the violations of the Geneva Conventions committed during the war and also for its inaction in the face of the genocide of European Jews. The ICRC thus emerged from the Second World War weakened, both politically and financially. But despite these difficulties, the ICRC managed to intervene in conflicts that occurred right after the Second World War in Greece, for example, Korea, in China, Indonesia...
2: The post-war period was also a time of reform of the humanitarian law. In 1949, 59 states met for a new revision of the Geneva Conventions. Four conventions were signed on August the 12th, 1949. In this take from an RTS archive soundbite, Max Petitpierre, president of the Confederation, clearly states that the 1949 conventions were intended to fill the gaps in humanitarian law Has highlighted by
4: the Second
0: World War.
4: Without wishing to repeat the analysis of the Geneva Conventions, I would like to remind you, however, of their meaning, their value, and the spirit which animates them. Their meaning, the principles of the Red Cross, which were the basis of the two conventions of 1929, had withstood the test of the people. These conventions had been applied, they had saved thousands of lives. Overall, they had been respected by the countries that had signed them. But they had not prevented all the atrocities that had occurred, mainly because their scope was too narrow and because their provisions were not specific enough.
2: Sorry for the sound quality. This is a take from mm-hmm. an official intervention by the President of the Confederation, Max Petitpierre, pierre on Radio Sautant in 1949, a statement made on the sidelines of the signing of the new Geneva Conventions, an intervention addressed to the delegates of the diplomatic conference. About the sound quality, there's a reason. (laughs) This is a take from a speech recorded on a 78 reel per minute recorder almost 75 years ago. That's why the sound of the disc is crackling and deteriorating. Difficult to decipher, really.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but it's still amazing to be able to hear it. So, Veronique, in
2: 1949, (coughs) four conventions were adopted. That's right.
1: Yeah, right. The first one for the improvement of the fate of the wounded and sick in the armed forces. The second convention covers the wounded in sea combats. The idea here was to protect the wounded, the sick, and shipwrecked in the armed forces. The third convention concerns the treatment of prisoners of war. It defines the notion of prisoner of war. And the fourth and last convention concerns the protection of civilians in time of war. This convention is the direct consequence of the Second World War as it recognized that civilians are now the main victims of war.
2: So what does it mean to be a prisoner of war under
1: international humanitarian law? The term prisoner of war is defined as a combatant who has been captured. This can be a soldier in an army, a member of a militia, or even certain civilians, such as resistance fighters. It is this convention that allows the International Committee of the Red Cross to visit all prisoners of war camps without restriction. The ICRC can also talk to prisoners without witnesses. This convention also sets limits on the general treatment of prisoners, such as the obligation to treat prisoners humanly, the prohibition of torture, sanitary obligations, whether in terms of hygiene or food, and respect for their religious beliefs.
2: After the Second World War, however, several countries refused to apply the conventions to German soldiers prosecuted for war crimes.
1: Yes, and it was only after a series of debates that the diplomatic conference of 1949 retained the idea of maintaining the benefit of the convention for prisoners, even after their final conviction.
2: What rules does the Fourth Convention lay down to protect civilians?
1: Well, with the Fourth Convention, civilians cannot be taken hostage or to be used as human shields. The torture of civilians to obtain information is also prohibited, and all reprisals against civilians or their property are also strictly forbidden. The army occupying a territory where civilians live must ensure their protection and is not allowed to deport them, for example. The fourth convention also specifies certain serious crimes, such as homicide, torture or inhuman treatment, including biological experiments, for example.
2: Were nuclear conflicts addressed in 1949?
1: No, but the nuclear reality was taken into account by the ICRC. For example, Dr Marcel Junot, who worked for the ICRC in 1945, was the first foreign doctor to go to Hiroshima to treat the victims following the attack on August the 6th. In September 1945, the ICRC called for the abolition of nuclear weapons. However, this highly politically sensitive issue was not discussed at the 1949 conference. The ICRC wanted the states Party to the Geneva Conventions of 1949 to agree to ban the use of nuclear weapons. But for the United States, this was inconceivable in the face of the threat posed by the USSR. You see, David, it was the Cold War logics.
2: Absolutely, Véronique, Cold War, but also the question of decolonization. So we're going to listen to a a soundbite about that topic
0: it can sometimes be seen not without concern that the young nations i mean those which have recently achieved independence are inclined to discount the cross idea and humanitarian law principles together with everything they inherited from colonial powers as just another import from europe yet it's an error to consider these principles as being of Western origin, formulated by whites for whites. The historical fact that they were born in Europe doesn't change the matter. For when conceived, they were designed to be universal.
2: In the 1950s and 60s, many countries, particularly in Africa, gained independence. In the take, we have just heard Jean Pictet, vice president of the ICRC, talks about the difficulties of applying the Geneva Conventions in Africa. What particular problems has decolonization posed for the application of the humanitarian law?
1: Well, this is a complex question. First of all, I would say that the application of the Geneva Conventions in the newly independent countries in Africa was made difficult by the very fact that these conventions were of European or Western origin. And as Jean pictet says in the extract we have just heard, some African countries considered these treaties as a new form of Western colonization. But there was also other problems. And another problem was linked to the very definition that the ICRC had given to the notion of international armed conflict, which is the only case in which the ICRC could intervene. For the Geneva Conventions to apply, David, wars must be international, interstate and governmental in character."
2: So what you're saying, Veronique, is that for many newly independent states, the humanitarian rules adopted in 1949 did not cover all situations of armed conflicts.
1: Precisely, David. The wars of decolonization after 1945 differ from traditional international armed conflicts. There are mostly struggles for decolonization between indigenous communities and the colonial power within a single country. These wars also imply other categories of actors who were not recognized as legal combatants by the 1949 Conventions, like the members of liberation movements who were not soldiers member of an army. In the 1960s, other conflicts
2: such as the Algerian War or the Vietnam War also showed the limits of the Geneva Conventions.
1: Yes, that's right, and, but the problem here was the definition of what constitutes a prisoner of war. For example, captured Algerian fighters were not considered by France as prisoners of war because they did not wear a military uniform. That said, the fact that the international humanitarian law had gaps does not mean that nothing has been done to help captured combatants. And ICRC delegates on mission played an important role by proposing ad hoc solutions that were not in the law. These unwritten rules form what we call the humanitarian doctrine.
2: For those who would like to know more about the birth and development of the humanitarian doctrine, You and I had the chance to talk to somebody called Jacques Moreillon, former ICRC delegate in uh, India first in 1965 and then Vietnam. And from 75 to 88, he was the director of Doctrine and Law, then director of general affairs and finally director general from 1984. He's a big shot. How yeah. listeners can listen to this interview on our website, GeneveMon.ch.
1: Yes, uh, this was a very interesting interview. So to go back to our history, in 1949, the ICRC's conventions did not anticipate the Cold War, decolonization, and the nature of internal wars, wars of independence, or wars of national liberation. That said, Article 3, which is common to the four Geneva Conventions adopted in 1949, already dealt with non-international armed conflicts. This Article 3 sets legal standards for the treatment of all persons in the hands of the enemy, regardless of their status. This Article 3 clearly states that no one can
2: be considered or treated as if they were excluded from the protection of the law.
1: Yes, but these were minimum legal rules and they needed to be developed and clarified. It was necessary also to take better account of the conception of humanitarianism defended by the newly decolonized states. As early as 1965, the ICRC began preparatory work to supplement the 1949 conventions in order to better cover the new realities of contemporary armed conflicts in international humanitarian law.
2: Let's listen to a soundbite from the 1977 conference taken from the ICRC's archive with Alexandre Hay, president of the ICRC from 1976 to 1987, on the few improvements brought about by the 1977 additional protocols.
4: If despite all our efforts, with the help of a number of other countries that are signatories to the conventions and are not directly involved in the conflict, no result is achieved, then in this final situation we resort to public opinion. In the Iraq-Iran conflict, for example, last year in May we had to inform all the signatory governments, i.e. 155 countries that have signed the Geneva Conventions, of the impossibility of carrying out our mission in accordance with the Convention. Dans le
2: that was an extract from the ICRC's archives in 1977 to adapt to contemporary conflicts in 1977 protocols number 1 and protocol number 2 first protocol and second protocol were adopted by the ICRC and strengthened the protection afforded to victims of international and non-international armed conflicts.
1: Yes, uh, in the early 1970s the ICRC prepared two draft of additional protocols to the 1949 Geneva Conventions, the first of which is to apply to international armed conflicts and the second to non-international armed conflicts. These texts were discussed at the diplomatic conference, which opened on February 20, 1974. The aim of this conference was twofold. The first objective was to have wars of liberation or decolonization recognized as wars between two states and therefore as international wars, a central point of the claims of the so-called third world countries. And according to the first protocol armed conflicts in which peoples struggle against colonial domination and foreign occupation and against racist regimes. And here we are talking especially about South Africa, in the exercise of the right of peoples to self-determination should also be considered as international armed conflicts.
2: One of the big political issues at the time was whether the first additional protocol dealing with international armed conflicts could apply to liberation fighters.
1: Yes, indeed. Fighters belonging to organizations such as the Palestinian Liberation Organization in the Middle East or the ANC and PAC in South Africa, all of which were recognized by the United Nations as representing the people of those countries. These liberation organizations were, because of this UN recognition, quasi-state entities The question was therefore whether they could benefit from the additional protocols and assuming that their enemies also ratified them, whether their combatants would benefit from the protection of the Geneva Conventions, particularly the provisions relating to prisoners of war. What
2: was the second objective of the additional protocols?
1: It was to minimize the effects of armed conflict on civilian populations like on women, children, refugees. The protocols strengthened the protection afforded to victims of international and non-international armed conflicts. They include provisions on the prohibition of bombing of civilian targets or indiscriminate attacks, a point that was not addressed in 1949. On the other hand, there is still no specific provision on nuclear weapons. The additional protocols are not intended to apply and do not apply to nuclear wars.
2: The contribution of the additional protocols to international humanitarian law is undeniable, even if the numerous reservations made by the states that have ratified them have reduced their scope.
1: Yes, precisely. And and unlike the first four Geneva Conventions of 1949, the additional protocols have not been ratified everywhere in the world. And many countries, as you said, David, made several reservations. And some countries, including the United States, have tended to limit their scope, especially since September 11, 2001. The U.S.-led wars against terrorism have also contributed to a renewed debate on the use of torture and its legality in certain cases, despite the fact that this inhuman practice is a crime under international humanitarian law and other instruments of international law.
2: The first version of the Geneva Conventions written in 1864 under the influence of Henri Dunant and Gustave Moynier, has thus evolved considerably over more than a century. And even though these conventions have saved the lives of many people, the ICRC still faces difficulties in the field.
1: Yes, this is true. And we can say that international humanitarian law is constantly... Evolving, and it is certain that it will continue to evolve in order to better take into account new challenges such as terrorist wars, cyber attacks, and climate wars, which will certainly become a major concern for the ICRC in the future. There are still many grey areas.
2: But there is no doubt about the relevance of the Geneva Conventions.
1: Of course, the provisions of the four conventions adopted in 1949 were all relevant to recent conflicts, including Afghanistan in 2001 and 2002, the Iraq War in 2003 and 2004, or the conflict between Russia and Georgia in 2008. That said, most recent armed conflicts are non-international in nature. And we can think about conflicts in Sri Lanka, Sudan, Colombia, and Afghanistan. And the ICRC must continually adapt to these realities. But beyond that, I would say that the biggest challenge for the ICRC remains to have these conventions applied even by the states that have ratified them. A problem mentioned by Alexandre Hay in the last soundbite we heard. And on this point, the ICRC may still have to think about how to put pressure on the states at war. And on this point, the ICRC may still have to think about how to put pressure on the states at war. The current war between Russia and Ukraine is an example of how topical this issue is. Sounds of history.
2: Thank you, Veronique, for everything, for this in depth work, research, <laughs> explanations, and so on and so forth. Thank you to Laurent Burkhalter for the readings of extracts from Henri Dunant's book, Memory of Salferino, and of uh, the correspondence between Gustave Mounier and the Swiss ambassador, Van Air, uh, that was dated back 1863. We talked about the history of the ICRC uh, with the sounds today. And we would like to thank the Public Library of Geneva uh, for the access of the Henri Dunant collection. Thanks to our sound engineer today, Christophe Gabriel. Also, my thanks go out to the archives of the ICRC, Brigitte Troyon, Michel Hou, and Daniel Palmieri. Thank you for your support. Also, thanks to the Memorial website, the archives of the Swiss Broadcasting Corporation, the RTS, Radio-Télévision Suisse. You can, of course, talk about the podcast Sounds of History and GeneveMonde.ch around you, and leave a few stars on the various platforms where you get that podcast you can also discover the special file we did on the humanitarian law on GeneveMonde.ch go to the dossiers section of GeneveMonde.ch please note that Sounds of History is a production of GeneveMonde.ch thank you to our wonderful team at Fonsard, the foundation that edits Sounds of History and GeneveMonde.ch and
1: see you next time and thank you to you David thank you Sounds of History, the podcast of genevemonde.ch. Geneve Monde, at the crossroads of history.